Support for the Exchange podcast from NHPR comes from you, our subscribers, and from the Elm Street Group at Morgan Stanley, working with clients to create enduring financial value and a lasting impact through sustainable investing solutions. A local wealth management team with global insights. Find out more at the Elm Street Group at morganstanley.com. From Dartmouth Hitchcock, imagine nationally ranked healthcare in your community. With convenient locations throughout northern New England, world-class providers are closer than you think. Visit DartmouthHitchcock.org to learn more. Dartmouth Hitchcock is here. And from Granite State College, offering diverse bachelor's and graduate business degree programs online. Designed to help working adults advance. Granite State College, where quality matters. More information and registration at granite.edu. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Laura Kanoy, and this is The Exchange. The vast majority of Americans say they support the idea of organ donation, and yet only about half are actually signed up to donate. Meanwhile, the need increases. Every 10 minutes in this country, another person is added to the waiting list. But there's also good news. The medical field today is better able to use so-called high-risk donations. Also, live donors are an increasing option, and there's expanding research on bioengineered organs and tissues and the forthcoming Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute under development now in Manchester, New Hampshire. Today in the exchange, organ donation, where it stands, and common myths about how it works. Let's hear your questions and stories. The exchange number, one 800 1-800-892-NHPR. Email exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. We had three guests with us. Dr. Fred Gordon is here, Vice Chair of the Department of Transplantation at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. And Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for being here. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Also with us, Alexandra Glazier, President and CEO of New England Donor Services, a nonprofit designated by the federal government to coordinate organ donation for transplant in our region. And Alexandra, thank you for making the trip. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And also with us, Logan Shannon, NHPR producer. Logan's husband, Derek, is a transplant recipient. She donated a portion of her liver to her husband. He later required another transplant from a non-living donor, and we will hear that story. And Logan, thank you so much for making time. Oh, out. it's my pleasure. Well, so let's start with your story, Logan. Why did Derek need a new liver? So in 2004, Derek was diagnosed with a disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, which I will now refer to as PSC because that's hard to say. Um, and that's a disease that's slow moving but basically destroys your liver over time. It destroys the bile ducts in the liver. Um, and he was told at the time when he was diagnosed that he'd have about 10 to 15 years before he would require a liver transplant. There's no cure. You there have is to no have cure. a transplant. Um, the only treatment, the only known treatment at this point is a liver transplant. So, um, so he was diagnosed. Um, he had some complications early on. And then he was checked on annually to see how he was doing. Um, and he waited. So 2004, he's diagnosed. He didn't 
start the transplant process, from what I understand, Logan, almost another decade exactly. later. So at what point did it become clear that uh, we're done watching and waiting, we need to move? So in 2013, the early part of 2013, Dr. Gordon actually um, noticed that there was a spot on Derek's liver. So one of the problems with PSC is that oftentimes patients develop liver cancer. Um, so that spot was a little concerning. And so at that point, we decided this would be a good time to see if he was eligible for transplant. So you go through a series of tests and meetings and all that sort of thing. So early 2013, they say, you're good for transplant, but we're not going to list you yet because you're not quite sick enough. Um, and that's a complicated sort of thing with Derek's disease specifically. Uh, when you have something like PSC, they really want to make sure they transplant you when you're healthy enough to, to really do well with the transplant, but you're sick enough to really need it. To justify it, to quote unquote, deserve it. To deserve it, but also because your body really, there's a couple things there. Your body needs to be healthy enough. For, a transplant surgery is a very uh, <laughs> a very stressful thing for your body to go through. So you need to be healthy enough to be able to handle it. But also they don't want to do it too soon because um, that would be, the risk of the surgery is greater at that point than, than actually having the transplant. So at that point, not sick enough for transplant. Fast forward to October and um, Derek became sick enough for transplant. A very scary situation, which yeah. was described in a report by NHPR's Todd Bookman a yeah. couple of years ago. And I encourage folks to look it up on our website, nhpr.org. Um, and Dr. Gordon, you know, I'm so struck by what Logan says. You know, he's got a disease that the only cure is a liver transplant, but he's not sick enough for transplant. It's hard for the average person to really understand that. So the, uh, the liver is a very resilient organ, uh, and so people can have progressive disease to the point of having cirrhosis, which really means severe scarring of the liver, uh, but still have a functional liver. So there's a lot of damage. There's a concern that things might progress to the point where the liver actually fails, but uh, many people can be healthy and, and, uh, and work and go to school even with advanced liver disease. Uh, and so really you want to reserve your transplants for the people whose livers have failed people who have jaundice, people who have, which is yellowing of the skin, people who have fluid accumulation, uh, people who have bleeding problems. Uh, those are some of our main indications for a liver transplant. And Alex, to you, um, you know, here we have this list that, again, Logan mentioned. How does this waiting list work, Alex, for people um, who are waiting for a, a vital organ like a liver? Great question. There's a significant national system, as you would expect, put in place to manage this list. It's run through the United Network for Organ Sharing, which holds a contract with the federal government to do this work. And so once a candidate is listed, there are very specific algorithms to ensure that the right organ is matched to the right candidate. And of course, there's also a matter of priority, because unfortunately, we know we don't have all the organs available for those who are waiting. As you mentioned, unfortunately, we have over 20 people who die waiting every day. So this is a scarce resource that um, we need to allocate carefully. When an organ donor is identified, then it's our organization's responsibility to work with the national system to see who the candidate is in order of priority that should receive that organ. Some of that is biological matching, blood type, for example, or maybe size. And some of that is priority based on that algorithm. So once that list is run and you hear about someone being near the top of the list, in reality, the list is compiled in the moment that a potential organ becomes available. Because again, the 
biologic criteria might be different for each candidate. And I'm guessing, Alexandra, that this has to happen very quickly, right? I mean, these yes. organs aren't going to you know, sit around for three weeks. We work in critically short time periods. So an organ donor is identified, and there's a whole process there in terms of ensuring that there's authorization for the donation, that there's medical suitability. And then once the process progresses, we're talking about a very short period of time, 24, 36 hours. You know, Dr. Gordon, um, what are some of the other you know, myths or misunderstandings that you run into about how this waiting list works? Again, who gets the top? Who has to wait? And I know Logan's got a story on that, too. Go ahead, Dr. Gordon. So let me, uh, let me take a step back and explain how the list works uh, in, in the proper sense, and then we can talk about the myths. So the... Uh, List is uh, set up uh, for allocation by something called the MELD score, M-E-L-D, stands for the Model of End-Stage Liver Disease. Uh, this is a mathematical calculation that uses four blood test results. Uh, so there's no fudging it, there's no faking it, there's no judgment. It's hard facts that are used to calculate this score. And what the score actually tells you is a three-month prediction of survival without a liver transplant. So. Uh, a low score, which is six points, is the best score anybody can have, would predict that there's a 1% chance of dying in the next three months. Now, that doesn't mean in the fourth month there's going to be a death. You just recalculate it again three months later and predict your next three months. It's kind of like a crystal ball. Uh, a MELD score of 40, which is the highest score, that means there's about a 95% chance of dying in the next three months. And so the list sets up where the higher the score, the higher you are on the list. Uh, and so uh, one of the myths is that uh, the longer you wait, the higher you are on the list. That's not true. It's really the sicker you are. Uh, and so while in this region in New England, we tell people the average waiting time is about two and a half years, hardly anybody waits two and a half years. There are some people that wait weeks to months because when they present, they're very, very sick and have a high MELD score. And so they'll be right at the top of the list very quickly. And then there are other people that have a slower progression of disease. We meet them a little bit earlier in the course. They have a lower MELD score and they sit towards the bottom of the list until several years may go by, uh, at which time their score may put them at the top of the list. And MELD, the L in MELD again stands for liver. Is it the same for other um, diseases? Alexandra, no. Do you want to jump in? Right. And so the, the there are similar but different type of medical criteria that are used for each of the organ systems that a patient might be waiting for. So it does look a little different for those waiting for hearts. For those waiting for kidneys, actually wait time ends up being a relatively significant factor for the prioritization on the list. So it is organ-specific. So, but in general, Alexandra, it sounds like the list is organized according to how desperately you need this organ? Medical priority is obviously incredibly important because we want to maximize the number of lives saved. And so we want to ensure that it, as uh, few people die waiting as possible. But there are other criteria as well in terms of what uh, potential life years could be gained. So that's the benefit side of the equation. And also for organs like kidney, things like time that an individual has been waiting um, is an important factor as well. So if someone was 80 years old, they would be not so high on the list because you would think if they get this brand new organ, how long are they really going to live with it? Actually, in our system here in our country, age is not one of the criteria. It's, it's medical criteria so that we can move away from any kind of judgment of societal worth or any other area that would really be a slippery slope for us. So it's medical criteria. It's just that for each organ, it's a different type of factor 
than what was just described. I would say, however, that in Europe and other places, they've begun to do some age matching, uh, just as you might have described, so that if a donor is older, over 80, perhaps their kidneys or liver could be used in an older recipient. It's an interesting idea. Well, and that gets us into who is a good candidate for donation and whether older people are welcome or not. But let me invite our listeners to join us as well. The exchange number is 1-800-892-6477. Email exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. Today in the exchange, we are trying to understand the complex world of organ donation and that transplant waiting list that you've probably heard about. Again, the number 1-800-892-6477. What questions do you have about how this works? What stories do you have about your own experience with this? Again, the number 1-800-892-6477. So, Logan, on the list, off the list, yeah. uh, it's a little confusing, but we'll sure. work through it. So, at first, Derek was put on the list, but then you volunteered to give him a piece of your own liver, because a liver is one of those amazing organs that can actually regenerate itself. Um, but it didn't go so well. Tell us what happened. So, so yeah. So he was put on the list. He remained on the list, even though I was a candidate for his uh, to be a donor to him. Um, so in April of 2014, I gave him part of my liver. And the surgery went really well. Um, we came out of surgery both feeling really good. Derek always says he felt great because he was on a lot of steroids. Um, and so it went really well. A couple days later, it was discovered that he was having a little bit of trouble with blood flow. Um, so to not bore anyone, it's called hepatic artery thrombosis. Um, but basically he wasn't getting blood flow to the liver. They went, they took him back into surgery to try to fix that. That did not work. And then the Monday following, so seven days after our first transplant, uh, we, he was put back on the list. And you waited and waited and waited. And ultimately, there was some good news. It's there a happy ending. News. Yeah, it's an amazing ending. Um, on May 12th, uh, we got news that there was a possible candidate uh, to be able to donate to Derek, a deceased donor. And I, I should, I really want to stress the, the feeling that both of us had when we found that out. Um, you would think that we would have been jumping for joy. Um, but we both felt really humbled and sad. Right, it another person has died. Another person has died. Um, it was it was hard. It's a hard thing to accept a gift like that. Um, but we were both relieved, and and frankly, it saved his life. Well, conflicting feelings, and let's just hear a little bit of that from uh, Derek and you, in that piece that NHPR's Todd Bookman did a few years ago about this whole experience. Let's hear. I definitely felt like I was cheating the system. I don't know how to explain it. I I never will. I think I'll always second guess or wonder about all those other people that I leapfrogged in front of. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever fully come to grips or accept the fact that I didn't take the hard path to get there. The reason it's different and the reason I don't think you cheated the system is because I put myself at risk and we're a team. So because I put myself at risk, you get to have the top of the list. And yes, you may have beat someone else out for that liver, but I guess I'm selfish in thinking that I wanted you to live. So I was glad. 
So some survivor guilt there, uh, yeah. Logan. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard when you realize we wanted to solve this ourselves. <laughs> yeah, the, and with the transplant between yeah, you. you know, we yeah. wanted. I wanted to be the donor. I'm, I joke all the time that if there was a YouTube video about how to do liver transplants and I could have done it for him myself, I would have. When you love someone and they're sick, you want nothing more than to be able to help them. Um, and, you know, soup goes so far. But you want to be able to make them feel better. And, you know, I feel so honored that I was his donor. But I also feel honored that I was part of a team that helped save his life. Um, you know, someone died and they were generous enough to be an organ donor. And now he's alive because of that. And I feel like I passed the baton to that person. He feels sometimes when he talks to people who've waited so long for transplant, he feels a little guilty that after I gave him a liver, he waited another I think it was like 22 days before he got a transplant. In the in the world of transplants, sometimes that's real fast, and he feels he feels conflicted about that. What do you think about that, Dr. Gordon? Um, <clears throat> I understand the, uh, the the conflicted feelings, um, but I also agree that uh, he, you know, without trying to put too much judgment on the word uh, deserved, but uh, he he needed a transplant more than anybody in the region at that moment. Uh, and Logan tried to help him out, and for technical reasons, it didn't didn't work out with that liver. Um, and and he was the most needy person in the region. So I, I don't think that there should be any guilt about that. Let's take a call again. The number one eight hundred eight nine two six four seven seven. Email exchange at nhpr dot org. Emily's in Pittsfield. Hi, Emily. Thanks for calling in. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi, um, I just wanted to share that my friend needed a liver transplant, and I forget what her disease was called, but it did not present her with a high enough MELD score to be really el ever eligible for a liver. Um, so it's presented as this unbiased way of need-based um, giving out of the organs, but it's not always totally fair that way. And Emily, what happened to your friend? Did she die? Is she still she living? No. She ended up getting a volunteer donator. Um, we all got tested, and um, it w ended up being an anonymous donor. Okay. But a living donor, Emily? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear about the end of the story. But, Dr. Gordon, some skepticism about this sort of dispassionate, you know, um, uh, ethical way of categorizing people. There's always suspicion that, you know, there's some favoritism at work. So I'll speak to this from the liver standpoint. Um, the, the MELD scoring system works for most, but not all, and that's actually recognized. And there's, a, there's an alternative pathway so that if uh, the team that is evaluating and taking care of the, the liver patient uh, feels that the MELD score actually isn't justifying the degree of illness that the patient really has, there is an alternative pathway where the uh, team can petition the other transplant programs in the region for additional MELD points. It still works through the MELD system. But if someone has a low MELD score, but the team can make the case that this patient is suffering uh, or may even have a higher mortality than the MELD score would predict for them, you can ask for extra points, uh, and, and that would move you up the list. Given So other factors right. can be added in. Did you want to jump in, Alexander, real quick? Well, I was just going to say, of course, this highlights the need for more organs. And so if we had more donors and more livers were available, we wouldn't have to make these excruciating decisions based on whatever the medical criteria are. And so, you know, Logan mentioned something really important, which is just 
sort of being humbled by the generosity. And we see that, too, of course, every day with the donors and the donor families that we work with. I think if you want an organ to be available for you or your loved one, if they ever found themselves in this circumstance, then you have an obligation, really, to think about your willingness to give if you're willing to receive. Well, and that's a great point. And we will follow up after a short break on who can become a donor and who cannot and some of the misunderstandings around that. Emily, thank you so much for the call. We'll take more of your calls after a short break. 1-800-892-6477. Stay with us. On the latest Outside In podcast. I started convulsing or spasming on the ground and uh, I couldn't even sit up. What if you could get rescued from anywhere on the planet? You know, it's like, we're going to die, we're going to die. Nope, we're going to make it. But what happens when not everyone gets the same chance to be saved? The difficulty obviously rises when affluence gives one person a better chance of survival than another person. Download Outside In on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today, organ transplants and donations require careful planning and timing. We're talking about the challenges and common misconceptions of organ donation and transplantation. The Exchange number is 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. One more time, the number 1-800-892-6477. So, Alexander, just before the break, you were saying that um, there is a desperate need for organs. I think you mentioned earlier that 20 people a day die just waiting. That's right. And here in New England, we have 5,300 waiting just here in New England. So looking at the surveys, you know, many, many people say, yeah, we support this idea of organ donation, but only about half sign up to be organ donors. Why is that? Well, first, I would say don't be discouraged. The <laughs> The registration rates have increased steadily in the country and certainly here in New England as well year over year. And also, our opt-in system has two opportunities for individuals to become donors. Register while you're alive, and we absolutely work on encouraging everyone to do that and keep that number increasing from 50 to where it should be, higher. But also, if an individual hasn't made their own donation decision, then in the moment when an organ donation opportunity exists, we are asking their family as a surrogate to make that decision. So although the registration rates are about 50 percent, the overall authorization rate for organ donation in our country is actually quite higher. Yet, there's still so much more we need to do. Well, another statistic, and I think I got this from your organization, Alexandra, is I think three in 1,000 people are actually, their organs are eligible for, or good for transplant. That's kind of discouraging, too. So 1,000 people say, yes, yes, I'll be a donor, but only three of them have it's organs about, that are useful? Right. It's about maybe 2 to 3% of deaths, we'll put it that way, that are, are clinically eligible for organ donation. And there's a number of reasons for that, um, both in terms of the medical conditions that individuals have at the time of their death that might rule them out, for example, malignancies or cancers of some type, and also maybe the manner that in which they died. And so... For organ donation to be successful, we're really talking about individuals who have uh, traumatic brain injury, 
it, it from either an organic cause like stroke or an, an accident and are in the hospital on ventilator support so that their organs remain viable for transplant. That's a fairly small number to begin with, which means that every opportunity for donation is incredibly precious. Well, and Dave asks about that. He says, how old can organ donors be? What about a history of cancer? Are all cancers a rule out? For donation. Alexander, you want to take that? Yeah, that's a great question. Don't rule yourself out. That's what we like to tell people, that in fact, uh, we are able to successfully save lives through transplant with our transplant partners for donors that are well into their 70s or 80s. And so it's important that individuals who believe in organ donation and want that legacy for themselves to save lives after they die, to not rule themselves out. The standards also change over time. And so while, yes, there are some cancers and malignancies that could rule you out today, there are great examples of conditions that had been ruled out in the past that no longer are today. You know, Logan, you have, since this experience, you and your husband, Derek, have gone around and talked to people about, you know, do this, don't be squeamish. Nobody likes to think about the moment they die. It's kind of icky to think about your organs being used, taken out and used. But go ahead. You've tried to help people sort of get over that hump. Yeah, I think the one thing that we say to people, exactly what Alexandra was saying, is that don't ever rule yourself out. And um, one thing that we do every year, we go to the Vans Warped Tour and we talk to kids who are at the concert about um, the power of organ donation. But the thing about that is that we talk to a lot of parents at the Vans Warped Tour. And I've had so many people come up to me and say, oh, I can't, I can't be a donor. I, I'm on these medications. I'm on a heart medication. I'm on this medication. And the point that we always make is, Signing up to be an organ donor doesn't mean you're going to be an organ donor. It means that you want to be a hero. Like you sign up on this list, that means that you are absolutely making the statement that you want to be able to help someone after you pass away. Doctors will figure out whether or not that's okay and whether or not that's going to work out. But to sign up, I think, you know, every time I meet someone and they tell me they're an organ donor, I shake their hand or I hug them because an organ donor saved my husband's life. He saved our lives. And I feel like it's so important to sign up. Again, the number here in the exchange, 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. Again, 1-800-892-6477. Another Logan in Exeter emails. Uh, she says, that's a very shocking number of people who die every day. That's the number you mentioned earlier, Alexandra, 20 people. Yes. Um, she says, hopefully organ generation will be possible in the future to solve the lack of organs. But in the meantime, why don't we look at legalizing the sale of organs? While there are lots of ethical issues to discuss and protections to implement, we ultimately have to increase the supply of organs somehow. As a secondary effect, increasing the supply would also decrease the cost. I want to thank Logan for that email because that's something that does come up. And you're right, Logan, there are ethical concerns. Dr. Gordon, I'm going to throw that sticky wicket to you first. Uh, Hotly, hotly debated topic. You know, uh, there are going to be some healthy people who have bad outcomes because they were looking for a couple of extra bucks. Uh, and so <clears throat> that, uh, that, that's very difficult to, uh, to, to uh, overcome, uh, being a living donor, having a bad outcome from the donor side of things. Uh, and the family has some amount of thousands of dollars to account for your, for your hardship and perhaps even a death. So you'd be afraid that someone would be a living donor, donate a kidney, for example, just for the money, and then it might not work, and then you're really in a mess. <laughs> That's a big concern. 
Alexandra, I can see one jumping. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. I mean, I would say first, it's important for people to know that we do have a federal law that prohibits the purchase and sale of organs. And I think people expect that, but it's important to say that out loud. And so this would be a very, very significant change legally as well as policy and and ethically. Internationally, uh, you know, the community really doesn't see financial incentives at the moment as the way to ethically increase the donor pool. However, there is a lot of movement to ensure that we remove financial disincentives for living donors. And that's a really important piece that there's legislation pending in various states uh, throughout the country and here in New England to ensure that if you are a living donor, that you don't bear the cost of having been a donor. And I think that's a key piece that we can all get behind ethically that could help remove a barrier for people to become living donors. And living donors, from what I understand, Dr. Gordon, um, what organs, kidney, liver, anything else, or is that pretty much it? Lung. Lung also. Lung? You can donate a lung? Mm -hmm. Really? Yes. You can get around with one lung and give it to someone else? Correct. Okay. You learn something new every day. Well, Penny on Facebook says, when my father died, he was able to do his last unselfish act and was an organ and tissue donor. Penny, thank you for the Facebook comment. And back to the phones. Let's go to Sarah in Concord. Hi, Sarah. You're on the exchange. Thanks for calling in. Hi. Can you hear me okay? We sure can, Sarah. Go ahead. So I am calling because my brother had a heart-lung transplant at the Cleveland Clinic um, 10 years ago. And he was waiting for organs for nine months and living in the hospital. Um, He was born with a heart condition, so his whole life he had dealing with um, uh, heart failure, so with pacemakers and medication. And when he he had four dry runs, which means four failed attempts, and when he finally got his organs from a donor, um, he underwent a lot of Um, uh, post-traumatic stress during this period of time. And so 10 years out, he's still struggling with the emotional impact and um, having a lot of personal and professional uh, failures in his life due to the transplant and living with this condition his whole life. And as his family, we've watched him struggle for so long and not receiving any help from the hospitals and the doctors that have taken that took care of him. And you know, it's something that people don't think about um, as our society and providing. We provide these organs and we have transplant lists and we give these people a second chance. But the aftermath is something I think we as a society should think about and the care that we provide for these post-transplant patients. Sure. Well, Sarah, I'm so um, glad you raised this point because, Logan, you know, until I started working on this show yesterday, I hadn't really thought about that point. But she's right. You know, we do as good a job as, you know, possible in finding organs for transplant. Doctors like Dr. Gordon, you know, obviously do a great job trying to get these transplants to be successful. But Sarah's right. There's a whole emotional side that's often ignored or unexplored. Yeah, and I think I I feel so bad for her brother. That is a that's hard to hear. I I can speak for myself and Derek and say that at Leahy we were provided with so many resources post transplant. Um, we see the transplant team now. We see them yearly, but right after transplant, we were seeing them weekly, and that meant also meeting with a social worker. Who's, really? So not just how's your liver doing, Derek? No, also, social worker to say how are you? How are you doing? How do you feel? Um, 
after a transplant, I mean, there's a variety of things. It's hard to deal with. There's the pain of the trans. I mean, there's the physical part of it, but the mental part of it is something to really um, to pay attention to. And I think that that's something that as patients, being an advocate for yourself and knowing that asking for help is important. All right. Thank you so much for the call. Did you want to jump in, Dr. Gordon? Yeah. So I, I, I think we need to redefine as a, uh, a society and as a transplant community the definition of success. Uh, it really is right now, is the patient still alive? And did the organ work? So that's the current definition of success. But the caller brings up an interesting point that there's more to success than just those two pieces of information. Well, Sarah, really glad you joined us. Thank you very much. And good luck to your brother. And let's take David next, uh, calling in from the Lakes region. Hi, David. Go ahead. You're in the air. Welcome. Yeah. Hi. How are you? Fine. Go ahead, David. I, I, love, I love your program. It's a very informative program, and I listen to it whenever I get a chance. Thanks, David. Go um, ahead. Yeah. My, my, my question simply is um, I, I, I am uh, in my 60s, and um, I have a very good, healthy lifestyle, uh, but I, uh, and I wanted to um, uh, fill out the paperwork that was involved in uh, organ donation. But the one problem I do have is that I am hepatitis C positive. So um, I question whether or not that is uh, viable and um, uh, whether it's still possible to donate. Well, and David, thank you very much for the call. And I'm sorry to hear about your hepatitis C. I know that's a struggle. But I do know, Alexander, that this is a piece of good news in the... um, organ donation and transplant community. Yes, absolutely. I think this goes to the point we talked about earlier, which is there's evolving standards of medical suitability of organ donation for transplant. And while HCV hepatitis might have been a rule out years ago, it most certainly is not today. And in fact, I can tell you here in New England, we routinely recover donated organs from individuals who are hepatitis positive, and those organs are transplanted primarily into recipients who are also hepatitis positive. However, there are protocols underway now to expand that to candidates waiting who are hepatitis negative. And the reason why is because there's been so much advance in the treatment and cure in some instances of hepatitis that the transmission of that disease as a risk for a candidate waiting for transplant really pales in comparison to their potential risk of dying while waiting. Sure. And so they so, say, hey, you can cure my hepatitis C, but absolutely. I need this kidney or whatever. Absolutely. So we encourage you to sign up. And you can do that either at the DMV, and there's a lot of other opportunities now to do that as well through your iPhone or registerme.org, which is the Donate Life America site. Well, and he mentions that he's in his 60s. And David, thank you so much for the call. And again, Alexandra, I had thought that um, you wouldn't want organs from older people just because, you know, that's a kidney that's been around for a long time. That's a heart that's been around the block more than once. So can you just enlighten us a little bit more on the age issue? Well, I think keep in mind, too, that those waiting for transplant have become older as well. I mean, as we have a population that's aged and is living relatively healthy lives longer and longer, there are many individuals waiting for transplant who are in their 50s, 60s, or even older. And I think although we don't age match organs, as we discussed before, it's really important to know that donors uh, that are older can absolutely save lives and those organs remain viable to 
to give additional years to those individuals waiting. Again, the number here in the exchange, 1-800-892-6477. Daniel's calling from Grafton. Grafton. Hi, Daniel. Go ahead. You're on the air. Daniel, go ahead. Can you hear me? Okay, Daniel, I hope you call back. Again, the number 1-800-892-6477. Here's an email from um, Adrian and Temple. And Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your story. Adrian says, my dad had two episodes of congestive heart failure at the age of 40 and 41. For the medical community, he was a perfect candidate for transplant because he was young and otherwise healthy. They thoroughly lacked a whole person view of health, though, and neglected to consider that he was an alcoholic. He received a transplant, but no treatment for alcoholism, and survived less than two years after his transplant because he wouldn't or couldn't stop drinking. Adrian says a heart from an 18-year-old man could have been put to better use if the many doctors involved had looked past the immediate surgery to the whole person. Has the approach changed in all the intervening years? My dad's transplant, Adrian, says, uh, was 16 years ago. By the way, she says transplant issues are tough to think about, but important, become a donor. Boy, Dr. Gordon, what a story. It gets back to what we talked about a minute ago, looking at the whole person, not just, you know, here's a candidate, here's an organ, go. Yeah, uh, we hope that uh, each program, and and in fact, each program is required to have both medical and surgical staff uh, required to have social work supports, required to have psychiatric evaluations and infectious disease. So one would hope that uh, that integrated approach would identify other problems besides just the heart problem or just the liver kidney problems. Um, So uh, yes, we are paying attention to those things. And unfortunately, in that story, we weren't successful. Well, and not to put it harshly, but it seems like listeners like Adrian don't want these perfectly good organs to go to waste. Agreed. We uh, we don't have enough uh, to waste, and and so uh, so they need to go to people who can can uh, be good stewards, can shepherd them forward. Yeah, but then you get into tricky judgment calls, don't you, um, Alexandra? You know who is going to be a good steward and who isn't. That's a tricky judgment to make. It it is, and our system's really designed to be quite blind to those things once someone is listed. And so I think uh, a good medical steward, and I think this raises issues in this particular case of whether this was uh, an appropriate medical circumstance with the supports that should have been in place perhaps to look at that. But once someone is on the list, it is allocated based on medical criteria. And I think that does remain quite important so that we're not making social judgments. Do you want to jump in, Logan, on that? Well, I think I think what's hard for people to understand sometimes is that um, the need is great. When you need a transplant, it's, it's hard to really... I feel like looking at how transplantation works, um, looking at what you need to do to sort of, as you said, shepherd the organ sort of after that, you become you become sort of linked with someone inextricably, someone that you don't know. Um, and I think that evaluating whether or not someone can successfully after transplant take the medication, that's one thing. Like there's a lot of medication that you have to take to keep you alive after you have a transplant because you have to make sure that your body doesn't reject it. Um, but that also you can handle the responsibility of caring for yourself after transplant. Those are important things to really keep in mind. And in our situation, I went through a full medical and psych evaluation. Derek went through a full medical and psych evaluation to really make sure that we were prepared that this was a decision that was going to affect him for the rest of his life. So you feel like you and Derek went through that very careful screening to make sure that you would be good stewards of this gift of life that someone gave you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that 
I think that was one of the most important things that he felt um, as he was going through that was, I am now responsible for this organ. Adrian, thank you so much for that email. Tough story. We're glad you contributed it. And let's hear from you after a break. Again, the exchange number is 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. Keep it right here. This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today in The Exchange, organ transplants and donations. New ideas are paving the way to shorten the long transplant waiting list here in New England. Let's get your questions, comments, and personal experiences in. 1-800-892-6477. Send us an email, exchange at nhpr.org. Respond on Facebook or Twitter at NHPR Exchange. One more time, that number, one 800 8926477 and all of you let's go right back to our listeners Martha's in Greenland. Hi Martha, you're on the exchange. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Morning. Um thank you for the show. It's a great topic. Um I wanted to just share my experience. I'm a living organ donor. I donated a kidney. Matter of fact, I had my 5-year we call it our kidney anniversary. Uh 5-year anniversary. Kidney anniversary. Okay. Kidney anniversary. Um, go ahead, Martha. We still celebrate. And um you know, I just wanted, I find that when I share my story, so many people are unaware that there is even such a thing as living organ donors and how that works. Um, you know, it's, I think it was almost a full year of getting approved in my case and the whole process. It's lengthy. It's a, you know, a commitment to make, but if I had another one to give, I would, I would do it again. So it was a, a great experience and um, I continue to participate in a wonderful group through Mass General that is a forum specifically for living organ donors to share our experience and help some of the new folks process all their feelings as they've recently gone through it. And I'm a little bit in that group of veteran because it started not um, just around the time when, when I made my donation. But I just, I, it's amazing to me as I go in and, you know, navigate the, the medical field that Many medical practitioners also are unaware, and I was a paired donation. That's another thing most people are not aware, that if you want to give for a loved one or a friend, um, you don't have to be a perfect match. I was part of a paired exchange. There were actually 16 of us in a chain. So the person I gave to didn't actually get my kidney. My kidney went to someone I've never met, and the person I gave for received um, a don't. Uh, kidney from someone else in the chain. So it's complicated, but um, (laughs) Well, Martha, I'm so glad you called because, Alexandra, um, I was just reading about this. Kidney chains. Can you give us just a a basic explanation of what that is? So the basic explanation is, just as you just heard, you have a a willing, living donor who may be incompatible with the individual that they would like to donate their kidney to. And so the concept's relatively simple, which is, well, let's take a group that is in that same circumstance and try and match up through a chain, so to speak, uh, so that everyone gets a compatible kidney. 
And um, this has been a great innovation in the field. It, it actually started here in New England more than a decade ago, and it's picked up speed. But it's important that people know that this is an option. So when they're, if you need a kidney transplant and you have a willing donor who's not compatible, this is a great opportunity to really expand that life-saving gift for, you know, in this case, a remarkable number of people. Well, Martha, thank you so much for calling. And, um, you know, something she mentioned, Dr. Gordon, educating medical professionals. And um, Logan and I talked about this yesterday, that for some doctors and nurses who don't work in transplant centers, um, Logan said sometimes it's an education process that, that is at work when you talk to other uh, people in your profession about organ donation. Yeah, I, uh, I lecture all over the region and the country uh, educating physicians about uh, the organ donation. Never mind and, the general and, public. And <laughs> that too. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of misconceptions. Age, health, um, uh, liver cancer in particular is a, is a, a transplantable condition for many people. Uh, and yet a lot of uh, oncologists, even cancer specialists, don't quite understand that. Uh, and so we don't get to see all the patients from cancer clinics who actually might be candidates for liver transplantation. So what do you say to your colleagues, again, the doctors and nurses who aren't in your field, but clearly they're you know, well-educated professionals? What sort of hurdles are you helping them get over? It really is a matter of, of, of understanding the indications and the acceptability of, of uh, transplantation. Um, so, you know, speaking at, uh, at medical conventions, uh, speaking at grand rounds uh, for medical practitioners, not just liver specialists or kidney specialists, I find that those people actually do know. But, uh, but primary care physicians uh, are a big target of mine. I'm kind of struck by the fact that cancer doctors don't know that um, a liver transplant, which, as we've heard, is completely doable, that they don't look at that as an option. Uh, a lot of it has to do with where you trained, and if you trained in an area where there was liver transplant available, chances are you've had some some direct experience with it. But if you trained in an area where liver transplant was not uh, part of the plan, you may not know. Logan, you've talked to a lot of people, um, including those in the medical field, about transplants and what it means. Yeah, and I think what's important is in, in places like, for example, in New Hampshire, we don't do a lot of transplants. We transplant kidneys, I think is it, um, and that's up at Dartmouth. And for hospitals here, a lot of hospitals here are um, having patients that come in. Um, they're in the ICU. They become eligible to be organ donors. And for those um, professionals, it's hard. They've been caring for a patient, and now that patient is leaving them, and they don't see the like amazing recovery of someone who's been waiting for a transplant and then is now. Like for Derek, for example, when he talks to medical professionals and says to them, Eight months after I got my transplant, I hiked Aspen Mountain. Like I, you know, or I've hiked 34 of the 48 4,000 footers because I got a transplant. And it's it's that connection that you make with doctors and nurses and professionals to say what you're doing is incredibly hard and you're not seeing the other side. And we're here to show you that other side, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for this, like that you've lost a patient, but that patient has actually saved someone else's life. So they're grieving. And in that grief, sometimes, Logan, it's hard for them to see the other side of it. Yeah, because they don't they're not caring for patients who just had transplants and are now, you know, their life is completely changed. Go ahead, Alexander. 
Right. And I would say that, you know, so that's part of the role our organization has to make sure that every possible opportunity for organ donation is identified. And the federal system is set up that way to try and capture what we call that potential to the extent we can. But it is really important that that human interconnectivity that's so unique about donation and transplantation is shared back with the professionals that had worked on the donation side, on the donor side, um, to see that benefit and the life-saving um, result from all that work. Let's go back to our listeners. And Melissa's in Nashua. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for calling in. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I missed the beginning of your program, so um, if you had addressed this earlier, I apologize for repeating. Um, I work in intensive care in um, Boston, and I have the opportunity to take care of um, a good amount of patients that go on to become potential organ donors, and I just wanted to say to the public what I, I've i heard more than more than once uh, from families who are in this situation that um, there's this fear that if I talk about organ donation or if I consent to organ donation that, um, you know, the goals of care is going to, to change and they're not going to work to save my loved one. And what I want to say is that for, um, and your guests can probably speak to this, is that for anybody to even get to the point where that can be addressed, um, all options have been exhausted. And it's a very specific set of criteria that needs to be met for anybody to even get to um, to be a potential organ donor. And I just wanted to assure the public that if you ever were in a situation where your family member was uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in the intensive care unit, um, that if you were to think about or if somebody spoke to you about that, um, that to not be afraid we would not uh, – to not be afraid that we're going to all of a sudden um, give up on their their family member. It's not like we can do a few things to try to save them, but because you said you wanted to donate organs, we're right. just going to give up on that. It doesn't change the quality of care uh, that you receive exactly, in the ICU. Exactly. Melissa, it's so good to and, hear from uh, you. And, to be fear. Yeah, and Dr. Gordon, um, this is something, Alexandra, I'm not sure who wants to take this. This is tricky, but I'm so glad Melissa called because it's out there, the concern that my loved one is in a terrible situation in the ICU and that if he or she has um, signed up as an organ donor, that the docs might be a little less active in terms of trying to recover my loved one. Right. I mean, this is certainly a myth that we worry about and something that the system has spent a lot of time ensuring that there's structure in place so that can't ever happen. So first of all, we're all in this work to save lives. And the first responsibility is to save the life of that patient that comes in, just as this caller mentioned, that's obligation number one. But importantly, your registration status as a donor is actually not known to the hospital. It is the New England Donor Services, the organ procurement organization that has access to the donor registry, not the emergency room physicians, not the ICU nurses. And that's a great check in the system that, in fact, your donation status is only checked after that referral is made, which is once clinical triggers are such that there's really no other option to try and save the loved one's life. And that's that's a key point. And so I agree, this caller raises a really critical piece of information for people to know, which is that your registration status in no way is going to interfere with everyone 
in the medical team doing everything they can to save a life when you're brought into that circumstance. Well, and um, thank you so much, Melissa, for raising that. And we should talk, Dr. Gordon, a little bit more about living donors. Again, people like Logan, who donated 60%, not 50%, (laughs) 60% of her liver to her husband, Derek. Um, How much is the use of living donors expanding? Um, I just wonder about that because, you know, there is also the impact on the living donor. So Living Donor is a, uh, a good resource uh, for organs. Uh, it sure, certainly isn't for everyone. Um, probably in the, in the liver world, uh, maybe 5 or 6% of all liver transplants in the United States are through that route. And, that's and it. That's right. Even though the liver can regenerate itself. That's right. Uh, the, you know, the donor is taking on some risk. Uh, the center needs to, uh, to have real expertise. This is not something that every liver transplant center does. Um, probably... Eight or ten centers in the United States do the vast, maybe eighty or ninety percent of the living donor tr- uh, transplants uh, in the United States uh, on the liver side. Um, so it it takes a, a committed team and a committed program uh, to do that. And there's 125 transplant programs and liver transplant programs in the U.S. So if uh, if ten are doing most of them, uh, those are the expert teams. What about kidneys, um, Dr. Gordon? Is that an area where it's a little bit easier to find a living donor? Yeah, a little bit more widespread. Uh, the operation for the donor is not quite as risky. There certainly are some risks. It's not, Neither operation is a no-risk procedure. Um, but uh, it's more common uh, to have a kidney donor, living donor transplant uh, availability. Did you want to jump in, Logan? I was just going to say, uh, I think that's important to note is that um, – liver transplant as a living donor is possible, it is, it's something to really think about. I say to everyone, sure, you could do it, but you have to really think about what it means. Um, in my situation, I was undergoing major abdominal surgery simultaneously that my husband was. So that I'm his primary caregiver, and I've now sort of like put myself out of commission. Um, but I would say, much like the woman who called in earlier who was part of the kidney chain, if I could donate my liver again, if that meant that I could save someone else's life, I would, because yes, it hurt. <laughs> it was painful, but it was the most rewarding. It's the best decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah, you're saving a life. Yep. Here's an email from Laura in Grantham. My uncle received one of the first successful kidney transplants from his sister in the mid-1960s at the age of 17. Wow, that's young. He lived mostly healthy with the donated organ for about 40 years, at which point it started to fail, went back on dialysis, back on the transplant list, By this point, my uncle was not healthy. He had diabetes, heart disease. He was a smoker. He was determined not to be a good candidate and was taken off the transplant list. Some family members were very angry he was taken off the list. But Laura says, I always felt the right decision was made. He likely wouldn't have survived surgery. Even if he had, he might not not have lived much longer or healthier anyway. He died at 61. Wow, Laura, uh, thank you so much for the email. And Alex, this gets back into the whole ethical issue, you know, you and Dr. Gordon said that um, the waiting list is decided on sort of algorithms, medical scoring, criteria. But then we hear stories like this where it's sort of made on these judgment calls. Well, because keep in mind, we're talking about two different steps in the process. The first is whether to put the patient on the list as a candidate at all. And it sounds like in this circumstance, the decision was made not to list the individual at that time as a candidate. That does have a lot of discretion and medical judgment based on things even that Logan mentioned about whether the patient will be able to comply with medication, has a structure in place to support what's necessary to take care of that grant 
graft once the transplant occurs. Once, and that's step one, but a separate component that we've been discussing in terms of the ethical components is in step two, once a candidate is listed, then the algorithm really is based on medical urgency and other medical criteria that don't take into account some of these other com- factors we've discussed. Dr. Gordon? The, uh, the waiting time in many areas is so long, uh, and for kidneys in New England, it's about five years. Um, so people's health change during that time. And so what may have been a candidate uh, five years ago in terms of general health may not be a candidate four or five years later because of the development of heart disease or a stroke uh, or malnutrition. Uh, so I tell my patients every time you come in, we're kind of reevaluating you. That, that initial decision is not a binding decision. Uh, it's, it's a reevaluation with every visit. Here's an email from Hillary and Merrimack. What are the guests' thoughts around including age in determining organ donation candidacy? Hillary says, I'm of the belief that a child should be higher than an elderly person on the organ donation list. Go ahead, Alexandra. You talked about that earlier. Well, yes, actually, uh, pediatric candidates do have priority for pediatric organs, and that's true in all organ systems. So it's good for people to know that we we do uh, worry very much about taking care of our youngest citizens, and um, they do receive priority here. In general, there's a lot of discussion about age matching. I mentioned in Europe that that they have uh, gone that route, but there's also a lot of considerations about that because one 50-year-old is not the same is another 50-year-old, and we, we all know that. And so I think it all goes back to really that medical criteria more than age as a proxy for other things. But the pediatric candidates do get special consideration. Well, here's an email uh, that I'll close out with from Susan. He, she says, my 20-year-old nephew died on June 4th as a result of a freak accident. He was an organ donor and was able to give his heart, lungs, and kidneys to five recipients, aged 10 through 64 years. Um, she says, I, uh, this amazing young man accomplished so much in his life and continues to give through organ donation. I urge everyone listening to make it known to their loved ones that they want to donate their organs. Put it in writing. Check the box on your driver's license renewal form. Update your living will. My family, Susan says, was treated with great love and kindness throughout the whole process of identifying recipients and kept the family informed. Thank you, Susan, so much for the email. And um, all of you, we will close it out on that. I mean, there's nothing really more to say after Susan's email, but also just demonstrating an impressive effort to keep a sense of humor throughout his transplant ordeal. We're going to close with a song written and performed by Logan's husband, Derek, and I just want to thank everyone for being here. This is The Exchange. Oh, liver, oh, liver, don't you quiver. It's just a diagnosis of liver cirrhosis. Oh, liver, oh, liver, I want to live forever without a disease called PSC. (laughs) Oh, liver, oh, liver, don't be a quitter. I just need to find a friend of mine to deliver their liver by organ donation to a transplantation before I die. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.